This episode of Gospel Bound is brought to you by Crossway and the new ESV Bible app. The ESV Bible app is designed to help you engage with God's Word on a deeper level, offering elegant, intuitive features to personalize your study, including multiple audio recordings of the full ESV text, audio playlists, customizable background music, daily reading plans, and more. Download the ESV Bible app on your phone or tablet, or visit esv.org to get started. You're listening to Gospel Bound, a podcast from the Gospel Coalition for those searching for firm faith in an anxious age. I'm your host, Colin Hansen. What's most important about humanity never changes. We're made in the image of God and separated from our Creator by our sin. We need a Savior lest we fall under God's judgment. Doesn't matter where you travel or what time period you study, this story doesn't change. But every culture around the world and across the ages highlights some aspects of this story and ignores others. It's the work of cultural apologetics to discern and explain these changes for Christians seeking to walk faithfully and teach effectively across varied contexts. One of the best cultural apologists I know is Josh Chatreau, author most recently of Telling a Better Story, How to Talk About God in a Skeptical Age published by Zondervan. Josh serves as executive director of the Center for Public Christianity and as theologian in residence at Holy Trinity Anglican Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. He's also co-author of Apologetics at the Cross and co-editor of The History of Apologetics. Josh is one of my go-to sources on book recommendations and just overall insight on how to follow Christ in this secular age. So it's a pleasure to welcome him on Gospel Bound and discuss the better story, late modernity, apologetics, and more. Josh, thanks for joining me. Yeah, good to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, Josh, we have good news. Why do we need a better story? Yeah, well, I mean, when we think of the good news, we think of the gospel story, or at least I think we should. I think the problem is we're living in a um, a culture where in the West today, we the, the story is not only being challenged as far as its veracity, it's being challenged on whether it's good and whether it's beautiful. So, this creates a new challenge for us, really a unique challenge for the church, because even 50 or 60 years ago in the West, we, even if people didn't believe necessarily Christianity, they tended in the West to see it as as something that was, you know, made for virtuous people, made for the type of citizens you wanted to live with and live around. And now, um, not so much. Now we're living in a culture where Christianity and Christians are increasingly seen as the villains, which means uh, we have to work not only to say this is true, but this is actually good news. Was there an aha moment for you when you realized that something fundamental had changed along the lines of what you just described and that the same messages and techniques just wouldn't cut it for evangelism and apologetics any longer? Well, I don't think there was an aha moment. It was for me. It takes a lot of a lot of listening and a lot of reading before before I, I really come to grips with uh, with most things. And I think, but I can talk about a couple of things that I think were important. One was just uh, was pastoring actually in fairly rural settings while I was doing my PhD. And so we're not talking about you know cultural centers and bastions of secular thought or anything. This was uh, in, the, in the South and rural areas. And yet, for various reasons, one, 
being that's the overwhelming access of information that young people had. Young people had deep questions that I didn't have when I was 16. Mm. <laughs> and they had, they were feeling what Charles Taylor calls the cross pressures of a fragilized age where uh, he talks about secularity being not simply, you know, people don't believe in God, but now basically all of our beliefs are contested and we could imagine the possibility and even the plausibility that maybe we're wrong. And so, I was doing ministry with students who were feeling this and yet we were still in the Bible Belt. (laughs) So, I said, okay, I, I grew up in South Georgia. As I'm doing ministry, I'm thinking, okay, something has changed. And then when I went to teach at a university, I experienced that even more so with university students. And yet, what I also noted during that time uh, was that the way we were equipping ministers and college students to deal with these questions and deal with these challenges was as if pretty much nothing had changed. Mm-hmm. So, there's two, two things there. One is, okay, we are in a different – the world has changed very quickly and the church hasn't really thought very well how, how to do discipleship and how to do evangelism and apologetics in light of this. So, so th- that's over years, not, not simply an aha moment, but over years, some experiences that, that shifted the way I thought about this. What had changed for those 16-year-olds versus when you were 16? The internet, a, a certain kind of social media, cable television. I mean, what, what, what was the predominant way that even in a rural setting, even in the Bible Belt, there were these cross pressures raising provocative questions against yeah. Christianity. Yeah, well, I think certainly the internet. <laughs> I mean, and and that's not to say the internet itself of course is a problem, but certainly the various information they had access to and the people that they would interact with and that the way media was presented and TVs presented and and especially in college, once you get to college increasingly they were more, I think, empathetic and sympathetic because they couldn't just write off, you know, their secular friends as complete idiots <laughs> or uh, the Muslim uh, as just, well, they're just the other. An evil abstract threat. Yeah. that, And that's a good way to put it, Colin, that it wasn't just abstract the other. It was, okay, actually, I know this person. They're a good person. And that's part of, of course, globalization and... um the changing dynamics, even in the last 20 years of, of what society's looking like, e- even in, in, in certain more rural areas that you wouldn't think, okay, this is a metropolitan center. They're, they're, they're consuming the same media. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, how much time do we spend in front of a screen now versus in f- actually with, you know, having conversations face to face? And I think all of a sudden you realize, oh, well, we're all consuming the same media no matter where you live. Yeah. I do think that was true when I look back and what I was watching on MTV or what I was tracking, especially through cable news and the music I was listening to. I grew up about as rural as you can on a farm in South Dakota, and it wasn't that different. But I think the gap has closed even more because probably because there's a lot more screen time. I mean, the major change has been the smartphones Mm -hmm. since then. If you're going to go back home and give a lecture in your hometown, South Georgia, 
versus what you're going to say to young professionals in Raleigh, North Carolina, how much does it change? I mean, has the gap almost entirely closed or is there still a gap of no, how you st- describe the, the challenges? No, there's still, and even in Raleigh, I mean, it, I mean, I think it's good to paint it. There, there, there's, it can be helpful to paint with somewhat of a broad brush, but very quickly then you have to zoom into your context. And even Raleigh is different than a New York City. And, and so, in the Bible Belt, you there's still some there's still some space. There's still some time, I would say, but it's coming. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I and I think so. Some of the kind of existential pressure, like the fear of coming out as a Christian in major cities, say in you know Seattle or, or in yeah. New York City, is different than a small town Georgia. I mean, there, there is some still social capital there for Christianity, no doubt. You know what I say in the in the book and telling a better story is if you're in a, if you're in a major city or you're under the age of 40, you feel this. In a, and I think one of the challenges in certain Southern cultures is it's people under 40, but then the people making the decisions in the church don't feel the pressure. Okay. So, so I, I guess to answer your question is it depends on who I'm talking to. In the yeah. If I'm talking well, to some, if I'm talking to college students in the South, it might not be as much different. But if you're talking to just kind of regular church folks, then you're going to you're going to be across the spectrum on that. I tell people all the time that the challenge for ministry in the South in particular is that the age range or the experiential range from those teenagers to the elderly in your church is wider than it Mm -hmm. is elsewhere. You can still run all the way from somebody who's elderly and completely unreconstructed in their views toward race. You can run into other people or sort of your, your run-of-the-mill Fox News conservative. You can run into somebody else who's more of a compassionate conservative type, all the way to their children. They may not even know it, or your youth group is just completely adopt- – I mean, it's not much different from what you'd see in any major city in the country. I just don't – I don't think you quite see the same spectrum in other parts of the country, probably because the South had more change to undergo. We both, where you're at now, Colin, and then I'm in North Carolina and grew up in Georgia. So, I think we have some similar experiences. So, I would agree. And it, in some sense, it makes uh, – that's a unique challenge in a way that there's yeah. certainly unique challenges if you're in Seattle or you're in New York City. Right. But this is this is why I think when we take apologetics books or ministry books, you're if, if you try to just copy your hero – you know, mm-hmm. you're going to run into some problems. And that's why we need kind of a bigger theological vision, but then we do have to apply it in our context uh, and it's going to look differently. Well, and to talk to talk about one of one of our friends, Tim Keller, he, it's still the case that Birmingham, Alabama is the kind of place that the younger brothers going all the way back to the parable of the prodigal son, they run away from typically to places like where Tim ministers in New York Mm -hmm. City. So, that's still true, even while they're often consuming the same media or the same platforms and seeing the same messages from their friends. Yeah. And and what I would want to say, and maybe I'm I'm backing up a little bit here, Colin, but because what I'm doing in apologetics, this conversation we're having is actually really unique in apologetics. Hmm. Because I think- Because this element of culture is actually something that in a lot of apologists have not given enough time to. Because they think it's just about sort of universal answers. 
I think there is in part a quest for like a silver bullet argument. I see. Okay. And then there is also, yes, I mean, what you're doing over there, they might suggest is kind of this cultural thing. We're just saying, is it true? And we're going to come up with an with a logical argument and a logic, logical arguments that will work anywhere. I see. And so, what, what you end up with is a kind of a dehistoricize or de, like a not paying very close attention to what's going on culturally yeah. and rather just saying, hey, this, this kind of apologetic just works. Now, science might change as so science, well, science does, ch- does change as far as the theories, but we need to pay attention to that and what's going on in that culture. But yeah. this kind of the general look at culture, it, not for all apologists, but I, I think uh, for, for much of the discipline for years ha- has, has looked like that. And then I think there's obviously in the last 10 years ago, there's been a 10 years or so, there's been this kind of this reimagining of the discipline. Yeah. I think I probably take for granted that change in the last 10 years, that 10 years coincides with the years that I've worked in this job at the gospel coalition and working with, working with Tim. And I think I do take that for granted. I, I think I don't mind a kind of rational apologetics that appeals to other people who think the way that rational apologists think. I don't mind that. I just don't run into those people very often. I don't find a lot of people who are primarily motivated through that kind of evidentiary exploration. I find most people to be intuitive thinkers, tribal thinkers, um, that they come to faith by the sovereign will of God through a variety of different means, often in a community type environment where they explore, is this, is the gospel good? And in part, is it good? Then they'll work backwards to discern whether or not it's true. And they make that decision based on whether or not the kind of people they're around are the kind of people they want to become Mm -hmm. with and like. So that's been my experience working intensely in the last 20 years in an urban slash suburban environment in the buckle of the Bible belt. And so I do take for granted that that kind of apologetics is the way things are typically going to work. Um, but yeah, there are some people, I just don't meet them very often who love the arguments of like the, the different theories that we love to read about and that you cover in your books about, you know, proofs of God. I'm not against it. I just don't find many people who want to talk to me about it. Yeah. And I I think those, I'm I'm, I'm with you on that, Colin, and those can be effective, uh, depending on the context, depending on who you're talking to. I do think at the same time, we want to keep in mind that, we want to be careful even as we, when we do enter those that, you know, the kind of, I think one of the myths with somebody who's more geared to kind of uh, use logical syllogisms and say, I just want to rationally look at this is to imagine that, you know, somehow they are simply kind of logic chopping their way to truth <laughs> that, you, you know, know right. the big, you know, as if it's like, science can explain meaning and value and all these things that people take for granted. And of course, as you were just putting, Colin, we, we come to faith, even the most kind of hard-nosed rational person is coming to faith for a variety of reasons. And, and so, sometimes we can just unwittingly kind of step in and somebody says, well, give me proof. And then we think we're giving them proof and we, we never can give them enough because they're using maybe proof for a math equation. That's what they're looking for. Yeah. And you can't, 
one plus one, your way to God. That's not, that's not going to be how it works. So you kind of have to even the playing field and say, Hey, look, you believe in a lot of things that you don't get just through basic logic. And, you know, and, and a lot of the things that are actually the most important and deepest things in your life. So I think they're before I suggest to people before you, go down that path, which I think you should, we need to reason with people, <laughs> but you need to make sure that they have, you know, what philosophers would call, you know, a chase in epistemology, you know, how, how do we come to know and believe? Um, and that, of course, that's going to look different in different areas. But when we talk about the big truths of life, we're not simply logic chopping our way there. I can easily get caught up in all the ways that the world has changed for the worse. I think I keep fighting a nostalgic streak in my life, and I love history also, and it's easy to pick out the good things and compare it to the bad things in your own day. But by no means is all lost in late modernity, meaning our current age. What should Christians love and appreciate about late modernity? I love that question, Colin. I appreciate you posing it. The um, Because I think for many of us, the sky at times can seem like it's fallen and uh, we don't even need COVID (laughs) to feel like that. And then you throw in a global pandemic and, you know, the, the, the civil unrest and then it can, it can feel, it can feel overwhelming. And thank goodness we have um, lament in the Psalms right during the season. But um, I, I do see that, you know, one of the things that's going on if you if you step back is given the challenges given that oftentimes christians and christianity is seen now as the villain as something not good and beautiful buried buried within the rejection of christianity are actually christian values because we wouldn't have ever got and this is you know the brilliance of of taylor here but we charles taylor but we wouldn't have ever gotten to this point without christianity or if you're tired of hearing about uh, Charles Taylor, if you're listening to this, uh, go check out Tom Holland's book or the podcast yeah. with Colin that I, I saw that you guys did. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, yeah, Tom Holland podcast. We're going to get more Charles Taylor later. So if people don't want Charles Taylor, this is not the podcast for them. Yeah. So, I mean, with that, though, you have this kind of, you know, you know, just to take two and, and another good one on this is Christian Smith. Uh, his work, Atheist Overreach, and then some of the, he, that's really some of that book is drawn for some earlier academic articles he, he had written. But, you know, well, he, he says, you know, okay, we've got universal benevolence, this modern belief, this modern moral order that says we should love all people regardless if they're in your tribe or not. Granted, you could argue that this is being challenged <laughs> here, but there's this sense where it's saying, no, there's children in Africa who were starving. You should care about. There's people right. across the world. This kind of us, and, and I agree with this <laughs> certainly um, that we should care about all types of people, no matter their neighbor or not. No matter if they're going to actually help us in any way, we should yeah. love them. Universal benevolence. The other thing is, and, and so that when we see a commercial on TV of that child starving, it's like, yeah, that's the right thing to do. We should care about that child. And then the other, the other one is human rights, that every, every person is, you know, endowed with this thing that we call human rights. And I affirm that and believe that. But it's becoming so increasingly clear that you don't get there without certain metaphysical assumptions, without certain 
it, just put this simply, you don't you don't get there without uh, the history of of Christianity. You don't get there without the development of Christianity in the West. And so it's these principles that people want to hang on to, and even at times attack Christianity on the basis of, and yet, and yet it's these very um, principles that come historically from Christianity. And it's not just that they come from historically from Christianity. They don't make sense without Christianity. Not livable without Christianity. In, uh, in apologetics, we're, we're typically giving our best answer in defense of Christianity. Josh, what's the best argument against Christianity? Well, uh, it's kind of like the best argument for. <laughs> <laughs> That's fine. You're an apologist. Turn it right around on me. That's what you do. When somebody says, what's the best argument? I say, well, that depends. Who am I talking to? And I think it's the same thing for the best argument against. Well, you know, it depends. <laughs> if I was an atheist, I'd say, who am I talking to? Because I would want to contextualize my argument against Christianity. But, you know, I think in our in our age, in our context in general, it's the crisis of virtue within Christianity. We can claim to have the greatest story to ever to be told, which I believe for a variety of rational and existential and social reasons. But if the lives of the saints don't match that story or seem so far from it, that those who are claiming Christ seem so far from it, not simply that we, not simply that we fell, of course, we're going to fail in, in many ways, but that we don't live lives of repentance. Uh, we don't live lives of hope and, and joy in the midst of suffering. In my forthcoming book, I do point out the problem, though, is that Christians behaving badly is going to be a perennial problem for us. One, because of what you said earlier, I mean, universal benevolence, meaning people expect Christians to act well. Mm -hmm. So that's a problem. I mean, that, that gets turned against us. They expect that. And then second, you have the simple media fact, which is that anything anybody anywhere does that's ugly becomes imputed to the whole. Yeah. That kind of polarization in our culture. So I don't really think we can eradicate the problem, but I think in the same ways that you talked about the rural teenagers, they have Muslim friends, they have atheist friends. They don't think of them as horrible, terrible, evil people. And therefore, if they're taught to expect that, their guard, their defenses of yeah. Christianity just fall. Why wouldn't, Josh, that work in reverse? If Christians are ambassadors of Christ and we're being, and the broader culture is saying that we Christians are horrible, terrible people, wouldn't it work in reverse that yeah. when we're not, it opens up the doors? Yeah, well, absolutely. I mean, the, the, if, if there's a local flesh, it, you know, if, if the media is painting Christians as evil, uh, you can get mad or you can start loving your neighbors. Yes. That's uh, right. And if you start loving your neighbors, it's going to kind of clear up the picture. How much, Josh, does our current apologetic challenge relate simply to affluence? We're talking about a religion in Christianity concerned with life, death, and eternity. And if we look at some of the, I think, most helpful recent writings locating some of our pagan inclinations today, Stephen Smith in particular, would say that what distinguishes Christianity is precisely its otherworldly orientation. But we're in a this-worldly time. 
whether on one side demanding justice in this world yeah. or on the other side demanding sort of full freedom in this in this world that affluence with its defenses and distractions offers the illusion that we don't need to fear death or find meaning that's the challenge i do wonder if affluence opens any opportunities for christians and yes i suppose this is another setup for augustine <laughs> well i mean i guess the the biggest argument is it's not working <laughs> yeah. in the sense of if if affluent i mean so yes to Colin, to your point absolutely i mean when we death when death feels like further from us when we feel a sense of safety and security and that yeah we can have it all and we can make our own me- meaning and life will be full and and we can we can do this ourselves and death isn't this existential threat, then we feel like we're in control. I mean, this is you know, this kind of lust for, for control and dominance. I mean, certainly it goes back to Genesis 3, but we're, we're living in a kind of post-enlightenment society where things have only intensified on a cultural level uh, in this way. So, absolutely. But on the other hand, I think the opportunity here is it's not actually working. Yeah, the anxiety levels, the medication levels, the anger, the polarization. I mean, this is this is Dr. Phil apologetics at yeah. this point. How's that working out for you? Well, uh, again, uh, I don't want to be cited as my apologetic approach is Dr. Phil apologetics. <laughs> oh, I, I, that, that, that's my fault. That's my okay. fault. Don't don't blame Josh for that one. And then sometimes people need some help to get there. I. I uh, talking to a, a friend of mine who's exploring and seeking, uh, you can use those labels, but he's hadn't been to church in a long, long, long time and, and doesn't consider himself a Christian, but he's, I've piqued his interest. And I think we were joking because obviously he knows what I do now. <laughs> and, uh, and I said, yeah, my job is to convince people they're a lot more screwed up than they think they are. Hmm. But to do it really nicely. Yeah. <laughs> and I, he laughed because we, we had a friendship at that point. And I think I'd pretty much convinced him that it – but it, it didn't take a lot of work because, you know, he reads – you know, he, he reads. And he, it doesn't take a whole lot of work to just look around. Yeah. And, of course, we I – mean, there was all this, you know, historically, as you would know, Colin, I mean, there was this progressive hope – you know, coming in the beginning of the 20th century and then World War right. One and World War Two and the Great Depression before that. And and all of a sudden, people are looking around and saying, hang on, what's going on here? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I, I think on a different level, uh, it, you know, if you in, – in some different ways, there's a lot of data here. <laughs> there's a lot of data points to say this actually isn't working. The problem is in a polarized context – you're always tempted to externalize the threat that the threat is merely the reason things are so screwed up is just because that other group out there just won't go away. So we have to escalate increasing. I think that's why out of that impulse of the early 20th century, what do you eventually get? You get things like the Russian revolution. And I, I do wonder if you have some early 21st century hopes being dashed before our eyes and I'm not going to predict like the Russian Revolution or something, but you do kind of sense some of that disenchantment in the air. Yeah, and I think you have. I mean, I've been. Ta- I was taken really as I was writing this book by 
Wilford McClay's argument and a strange persistence of guilt. Yeah. And he's arguing there that, you know, with, um, I mean, it's a fabulous article. You guys listen to this, should really read it. It was in Hedgehog yeah. Review, which is just a great, a great little journal produced at some way by James Davison Hunter at UVA. But McClay's, who's, who's t- McClay teaches at University of Oklahoma and a historian. And what he's arguing there is you had uh, Frederick Nietzsche, who, of course, said God's dead and we killed him. And he, he's, he's not saying that God was ever alive in his mind, but that we had created God and then we killed him. And with that, there would no longer be any kind of um, cosmic morality. Right. And therefore, there would no be, be no more cosmic guilt. You would no longer feel guilty because there's no morality. But McClay says, Freud comes in and Freud says, well, actually, that's wrong. I mean, he's Freud saying, we're still going to, even though we don't have cosmic universal morality, we're still going to have guilt. And it's only going to be worse because of technology. Because we're going to know that, again, universal benevolence, that we could do more. We could recycle more. We could adopt more kids. We could give more of our money away. And it will never go away. And we will continue to feel guilty. Mm. And what McClay goes on to argue is that because we feel guilty still, still, we have to have a mechanism to deal with that. And in the past, there's been scapegoats through religion, (laughs) you know, actually a scapegoat, or atonement, the cross. But he's saying now this kind of, um, this guilt, this internal guilt that we feel is now the way we escape it is we blame the other. We blame the other. And it's no longer that, you know, we're both, you know, we're in part guilty. So he's saying there is a storyline, there is a script, and guilt is driving this. Now, I think that's a real opportunity because once we discover that, we don't have to be afraid to talk about guilt because we realize they already feel guilty. Because they're feeling guilty, though, they are entering into a way to alleviate that 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 won't ever work and will only lead to t- more turmoil culturally. And so, again, I think this is where kind of understanding our times and what's going on is really helpful because that's that's an entry point for the gospel. And we can still talk about guilt. I I think we can do the idolatry thing and talk about idols. I think that's really effective. But we can talk about guilt because people still feel it and it's coming coming out. And then it leads to this kind of social unrest we're, we're experiencing. I just can't figure out how we break the cycle of polarization and blame. I think the the spoke in the wheel opportunity is for Christians to love their enemies, which shows just how bad things have gotten off track because that's certainly not the sort of dominant political narrative that we see coming from Christians. I just can't quite figure out how do you how do you puncture that balloon? Like how how do you how do you destroy that sense that yeah, I feel guilty that things aren't bad? But I take that guilt out and I project it onto everybody else so that I can maintain my victim status, no matter how rich I am, no matter mm-hmm. how powerful I am. It's just somehow everybody has convinced themselves that they're the oppressed ones in this mm-hmm. world. And somehow that is what they use to absolve themselves of the guilt. I mean, I have some thoughts on it, but I think it's interesting because even that. Um, just to echo some something we said earlier is is this idea that you know you're going to gain dominance by declaring victimhood <laughs> would be foreign in in a yeah. pagan society. That now so that we, we can't you're right. we can't purely right. go back here and, yep. and to simply say we're living in this new pagan society. 
Yeah. We that would be so foreign to a pagan society. Yeah, we're that, going back to Tom Holland's argument. Yeah, here. and I think he's the, right. The love yeah. of the respect for victims is a uniquely Christian phenomenon. It mm-hmm. just doesn't make sense outside the Christian yeah. story. So all the calls to kind of like we're Good going point. back to paganism, I, I don't know. I mean, it, it, I, I think I understand what's being said there, uh, you know, on a, but I, I think it's missing something as well because we've, we can only get to where we're at now by going through Christianity. Yeah. And so if we're not aware of, of, of how this kind of secularism has some parallels absolutely to what Augustine was what is, was dealing with and another uh, early church apologist, but also uniquely different. I think we will miss some of the texture that we need to understand as preachers and teachers and disciplers. Yeah. Well, paganism is a loaded term, and that's why it's been helpful for me to simply understand it as the horizon of now, the horizon mm-hmm. of this world. And that's why it's simply difficult for us to be able to break out of that framework. So let me then transition into this is where the interview gets hard. Okay. <laughs> this is this is where it actually gets difficult. The rest of this is easy for you, but this is where it gets hard. I'm going to quote Charles Taylor from Sources of the Self. It's maybe my biggest worry right now. All right. This isn't going to be like a quiz. This is going to be, you know, an answer. It seems like in this quote, he's saying that Christianity produces longings for reform. He expands on this in a secular age. Christianity produces longings for reform in this world that can't be realized here because of sin, this fallen world, and thus turns reformers into secularists. Now, we know the context here for the listeners. The context is that Taylor blames the Reformation for a lot, and he describes this Mm. Sense of of sort of fallen nature. He calls it the hyper Augustinian view. It was interesting when I was reading Martin Luther King Jr. recently. Um, I think it was actually last year. Realized that he said, "I reject the Reformation," and precisely because I reject the premise of original sin, mm. because original sin destroys any motivation for anybody to change this world. So I assume that people are good and will react to good appeals to them. So I think King would probably be right in line, at least based on that, um, strength to love, of, of, with Taylor here. But let me read the Taylor quote, and then we can talk about whether this is, this is a true problem. Quote, But to the extent that the hyper-Augustinian view comes to be accepted as the definition of Christian faith, that it comes to be accepted that wholesale dedication to secular reform sits uneasily with this faith, to that degree, those committed to the cause may feel forced outside Orthodox Christianity by the very force of commitment. The paradox is that a religious impulse and vision may sometimes drive people out of religious belief. End quote. So is he right? I think there's various, if I'm understanding him correctly, uh, you know. Uh, <laughs> that's, that's always the caveat with Taylor. Serves <laughs> himself is a big book, and I have read it, but it, it wasn't last week. Um, and so I... And to pick up what, on what you were saying, and then you can you can uh, correct me here if I've understood them wrong or if I'm not answering your question, which is, I, I think there's various different motivations for Christians to reform. And that, that should happen on a number of levels. That's um, to love your neighbor. <laughs> and so I think that's a motivation. How do we love our neighbor on a very baseline level? I think also by how, as communities, 
we do justice and care for the world, we actually reflect we're living parables of the coming kingdom. And and so that's just two of kind of reasons. And another one I get is simply, I guess, with that would be obedience. I think that the danger is a kind of over-realized eschatology, right? And if Christians don't realize that part of Christianity, and I I talk about this in the book, is that, yeah, this world isn't going to be utopian. We're not going to we're not going to fix it all. And I think that, that that type of realism, though, actually is is helpful. <laughs> it is, but try selling that at the protest rally. Yeah. Try saying, hey, everybody, I'm so glad you're here. I'm glad you care about this. This is evidence that you've been made in the image of God, that you've been, you know, that, that God has impressed his sense of justice on you. And I also want to point out to you that probably your best efforts will fail. <laughs> I just it just isn't yeah, the yeah. it isn't the message that we're hearing as that's for sure. You have we have pointers, right? We have pointers of in the history of the world where Christianity has it has inspired even even whether you realize it or not, this protest movement is inspired by Christianity in the way that you're thinking about this yeah, and that you're right. caring. So even the idea that you're that, that you should be doing this and you should be seeking reform in this way and you should care about the victim. That's already there but in some sense because of Christianity. But then if you have a utopian view, then what's going to happen is you will become the oppressor. <laughs> you, only took, you only took the part of one part of Christianity. <laughs> you left the rest of it. You were pretty selective about that. You, you need a heavy do- dose of Solzhenitsyn in there is what you're saying. And, and I think that these longings that we have and that and and what i hear you saying is that christianity is like putting fire on these longings and then yep. can't fulfill it in this world i would say yeah exactly i mean this is cs lewis's argument right like we want justice why do you want justice well cuz you want the true judge you're actually not longing for a system you're longing for a person <laughs> and yep. you're look and you're longing for his reign and so and you know you're you're made for something you're not going to get in this world. And no. so I think it's actually if we don't have this kind of Christian eschatology to not only and I think Augustine has this by the way, but to not only critique the present order because yeah. where where are you going to stand? I mean, you, you need some context. Well, where well he you can critique the present order because you because you have a vision of what justice should be. So it gives you actually this kind of vision of what justice should be. And then it also reminds you that if you try to bring that in yourself, you will become yeah. the oppressor. And so yeah. I would say that Christian theology at here gives us the exact resources we need. And now, of course, I'd have to think more about Taylor. You're giving me the exact right, I think, biblical theological argument to respond from our reformational outlook to Taylor's view that a lot of this stuff is all of the problems that we see originate in the Reformation. So I think that's true. The problem is I have a hard time arguing against Taylor experientially because this seems to be something I consistently see is that Christians whose primary expression of faith is in seeking to bring about reform in this world inevitably fail because reform in this world just doesn't come to our satisfaction because we've been made for another world. 
but they give up on the Christianity in the process as opposed to digging deeper in to say, Jesus prepared me for this. I think if, if we try to play the Messiah, we've got the story wrong. And, and yet we should be pointers to the Messiah. Yeah. And, and yeah. with that, that means this kind of this, this trust in God, this knowing that we weren't made for this world as it is now. And yet at the same time, um, here we are on pilgrimage. Yeah. We're on pilgrimage. This isn't our final home. Not that a physical reality isn't our final home. I'm not, I'm not, that's not, not my theology. There's going to be a new creation, new heavens, new earth. But, but that in this present state, that's not it. And I actually think that's actually going to, if you have that and then we preach that and disciple that, it's going to make for a kind of salty Christian that is, is really actually prepared to deal with suffering and can have hope and joy. But when we have the over-realized eschatology, then it's going to cause problems. And this is, so I'm in, I mean, part of my thing, right, as you know, Colin, is I, is in Center for, Center for Public Christianity, but also in, do stuff with work and faith. And I think this is one of the things we have to keep in mind in that world. It's not just, hey, you know, when you're young and you're energetic and hey, Bob Inc. and Kuiper, they gave us the world back for those in that tradition and they think this is incredible. But if you put too much stock in what we can do, you end up, you you, you buy into a certain actually secular vision of the world. And I guess that's what you're calling paganism, the the only this world-ness that that actually is going to, is going to deform us as disciples. Yeah. All right. Well, I think I've uh, interrogated you enough, Josh. Um, but one last uh, quick fun question. What's the last great book you've read? I'll give a shout out to one of my um, apologetic heroes, and that's uh, Alistair McGrath. And his, um, it's Born to Wonder. Born to Wonder. Okay. And I, I mentioned I mis- mentioned Alistair's book. I think you guys just reviewed it. And I would just say that I think what Alistair has been doing apologetically is has been somewhat missed in maybe our circles, Colin. And, and you know, there's your reviewer had some critiques and, and, and that's yeah. fine and fair. But, but I think his approach, not buying into kind of just modernistic forms of apologetics, there's, there's lots for um, various traditions to, to learn from Alistair. And I think this book is, is one of his popular ones kind of doing that. So, I mean, I'll, I'll stick with kind of, my my area that I'm on the podcast for, which is apologetics, and just recommend <laughs> okay. Alistair's stuff. But Born to Wonder is a kind of popular kind of uh, look at some of what he's doing. My guest on Gospel Bound has been Josh Chatreau. And go ahead and check out his book, Telling a Better Story, How to Talk About God in a Skeptical Age, published by Zondervan. I think, Josh, this is probably a book that a lot of people, members in churches can read. It'd be a good Sunday school class book, I think, a good small group book. If you're doing campus ministry, be a great thing for the folks in your campus ministry to read together. If you want to check out Josh's other books, you got plenty of options. You've got Apologetics at the Cross. You've got the history of apologetics. Got a lot of options. But we've been talking about telling a better story, how to talk about God in a skeptical age. Thanks, Josh, for modeling that for us. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Gospel Bound with Colin Hansen. Join us next time as we continue the search for firm faith in an anxious age. Visit tgc.org slash gospelbound to find transcripts and past episodes, subscribe to my newsletter, and suggest a guest or topic that will help you find hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ.